This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. I've spoken here many times about what it's like to be a creative person or a poet, a painter, a musician, and to not find the renown or the acceptance or even the fame or the, in some cases, the riches or just the bare living that you'd like from that work. And it has seemed in some episodes, especially the one that is called Jealousy, uh, that I am jealous of those creative people who have achieved this kind of renown or living or fame of some kind. And so I think tonight it is worth looking at uh, perhaps an extreme example of what happens when a poet, in this case, does find fame. Um, and renown and infamy. Um, It is a very extreme example, but I think as I go along, you'll understand why I've chosen it, because especially in our current uh, cultural moment of social media, um, where the assumption is that everyone's private life is just uh, grist for the mill of everyone else's gossip, and where it is assumed that uh, people or artists or actors, I guess in in many cases, actors or musicians whose work we admire and we somehow latch on to their lives and we assume we know something about them personally and how easy it is to pretend that we really do know them when in fact we really do not at all. We only know the symbol of them. We only know the the image of them that they present to the public. But still, it's very easy uh, when you get all mixed up in this, especially now with social media or just 24-hour news or just, just the way people talk to each other about well-known people. It is so easy to become certain about your point of view, about the private lives of other people. Um, And it is so easy to uh, tear apart the lives of those people who are still living, in this case, uh, those people who are living in the aftermath of someone who has died. Um, That's also something that I've mentioned many times here before, that tendency, and I am no doubt guilty of it, of becoming so attached to the life of an artist I think of uh, Vincent van Gogh, I think of uh, 
Seamus Heaney or T.S. Eliot, um, uh, many others whose names obviously are slipping away right now. And I become so attached to them. I spend so much time reading their letters or biographies or uh, the works themselves or viewing or listening to the works themselves. The other week I did an episode about Beethoven. And even I come out of it thinking, I know these people, um, that uh, I feel a deep connection to them. Even as, uh, as the feeling fades, I know that in reality, if I ever met many of these people, or if they met me, uh, there's no reason to think that a friendship would ever, uh, uh, would ever take place. Um, there's always that. Uh, the thing that we most become attached to, it seems to me, it seems to be the symbol of what a person means to us personally, not the actual person themselves. So to get to the actual persons themselves, the what I'm going to read tonight is a long letter that Ted Hughes wrote to uh, a friend of his and a, and a famous literary critic back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, whose name was Al Alvarez. And uh, just to give a brief background, uh, because as I, as I also mentioned in the last episode where I talked about Ted Hughes, while it's very easy to um, become enraged and inflamed with this whole drama, it's also worth noting that most people, most people who don't read poetry, and nowadays maybe people who, don't, who read poetry don't even know about this, do not know the story of Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. Uh, since this episode is about the danger and the terror and the poison of gossip, I will do my best to sum up the story prior to this letter being written um, as briefly and succinctly as possible uh, from what I know, from what I've read, and from what I've heard uh, from interviews. Although I'm sure that people who take one or another side of this will, will see the minute or two that I take to tell this story and see all kinds of biases and omissions. But the general idea is, is that uh, uh, Sylvia Plath came over to Britain in the late 50s on a Fulbright scholarship. Uh, she met Ted Hughes uh, soon after getting there at a party. Uh, both of them arrived at the party with someone else, but it became very clear soon after the party uh, that they belonged together, and they were together for seven years, first in England and then uh, when Sylvia Plath uh, got a job at our old uh, university in America. They came over to America for a few years, and after teaching War Plath out, it wasn't what she wanted to do. Uh, they took a tour of America and then uh, came back uh, to Britain, and they had uh, two children during this time, uh, Nicholas and Frida, and at some point, um, surely it's in May of 1962, I believe. Should be right about those dates, but I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, Ted Hughes began to have an affair with another woman in Asia Wevel, and it's not the affair that I always assumed happened with all of this. 
back when all I knew were bits and pieces, the assumption was is that he left Sylvia Plath immediately and uh, went to live with uh, Asia Wevel. And uh, that is what precipitated Sylvia Plath's suicide. Um, but that's not actually the case. This drama seems to have gone on for months, uh, going back and forth, back and forth, until at one point, um, it doesn't even seem to be that uh, Ted Hughes and Asia Wevel were actually planning to be together at all. Uh, Asia Wevel was still married to uh, another poet at the time. Uh, when Sylvia Plath did take her life, as everyone, uh, there I go again, as most people know, she uh, locked up the, the doors and the windows in her house so that her children weren't uh, killed as well, and um, she turned the oven on and uh, killed herself that way. Um, as the, I believe that was in 62, 63, I believe it was in uh, early 63 when that happened. And it wasn't very hard for uh, the feminism of the late 60s to latch on to Ted Hughes as being some kind of a monster, especially when Asia Wevel herself, I believe in 1969 or 1970, uh, killed herself in the same way and also took the life of her small daughter that she had had uh, with Hughes at this time. And again, the assumption with that too was that Hughes uh, was cheating on her and they were, uh, uh, Wevel had had expectations of being together with him uh, forever or whatever it was, and he cheated on her and then she went off and killed herself. And that doesn't seem to be the case either. Um, the reason that I don't think Ted Hughes is the monster that everyone makes him out to be is simply uh, from the evidence of the letters and the biographies, he seems more of, a, of an oaf, uh, not really sure what is going on, not really sure about the choices he should be making, and uh, he makes uh, irrevocably bad decisions, but not monstrous or abusive ones, as far as I can tell. and. Um, and at least in the case of Asia Wevel, it's, it's the, the uh, a woman who was already uh, mentally imbalanced and who had already uh, had fantasies of suicide, suddenly living with the ghost of this immensely powerful poet, Sylvia Plath, uh, in the house she was sharing with Ted Hughes and all of these other things, being haunted by this uh, by this this astounding poet in Sylvia Plath, and that seems to have uh, encouraged her into taking her own life as well. It's all a very sad and uh, mournful thing to look at, and so it's even more bizarre that it is basically turned into a soap opera of competing armies of scholars and fans and all of these things. Um, it struck me as I was reading uh, the letters and the diaries um, what, a, what, what an insult it is to someone with as powerful a mind and intellect as Sylvia Plath to just turn her into a victim, turn her into some weak person uh, who couldn't possibly take care of herself. Um, that seems like the greatest insult you can possibly 
imagine to someone of that uh, mental and spiritual and creative uh, capacity. And on, and on the other sense, it's just the idea, uh, I'm not aware of any other couples. Um, the only one that comes to mind is Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, I can't think of a couple who were both at the top of their game when they were together at all, who were this powerful, titanic, creative force. And so it's not really a surprise that, uh, that their relationship and that their marriage couldn't last at the level of intensity that it once did, simply because their own creativity was so powerful and so intense, isolated from that of their spouse. Um, and it just struck me going through all of this stuff, how little many of us can explain our own relationships whether a marriage or, uh, or whatever it is, or just our friendships, and sort of how dare we uh, pretend that we can do this to someone else, uh, even if they have left behind uh, poetry that seems to tell the story, even if they have left behind uh, journals and interviews and uh, the memories of other people who were around at the time, even if you can construct a huge oral history of an event, what what an what a disgusting insult it is to turn people, turn actual human beings, turn people who had a hard enough time as it was living as uh, as poets uh, in the middle of the twentieth century, and suddenly. Uh, turning them into symbols of this or that political or cultural point of view. And I really mentioned to someone recently that uh, going through this and seeing what similarities there are to the ability of Twitter or whatever it is to jump on people for uh, mistaken reasons or ignorant reasons or just because people feel like piling on someone or becoming the fan of someone for no reason other than that it seems fashionable. I, I told someone recently that, uh, you know, this, is, <laughs> this has been going on for so long that this tendency of people to just become ugly with each other uh, and uh, to have absolutely no empathy for each other, that when I hear of, a, uh, of an extreme cultural opinion nowadays of whatever kind for or against this or that person or movie or book or painting or author or musician or TV show, um, whatever it is. If I hear some uh, hyperbolic uh, yay or nay on any of these things, uh, I'm just immediately suspicious. I'm not going to buy it and it all seems to me to probably be fake news. But to get to the letter at hand, let me see how long did it take to do that? Probably too long, about 15 minutes. But this is a letter that Ted Hughes wrote to Al Alvarez in November of 1971. This is just after, I believe, uh, the publication of Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, her novel. The Bell Jar uh, happened in America, and uh, which put her name back into the 
or even more so, into the tabloid mouths of the universities and the students and the teachers and the, the whole monster of, of uh, literary studies. And Alvarez was writing a book about literature and suicide, and he included a 30-page chapter on Plath and her suicide. And this is less than 10 years after she committed suicide. This is uh, obviously with Ted Hughes still alive and her children still alive. And, um, and it should be said, too, that in the last week or so of her life, uh, Plath had an affair with Alvarez as well, sort of a, sort of a reve revenge affair, we might say, uh, against Hughes. So there's all these things mixed up here. But this is a remarkable letter that Ted Hughes wrote to Alvarez in response to what Alvarez had written as a literary scholar, as a, uh, as a critic about the death of Sylvia Plath. And, um, and it should be said that Alvarez, Plath, and Hughes were all friends. Um, and so this uh, part of the power of this comes from being written to someone that Hughes is familiar with. And if you have no sympathy for Ted Hughes, uh, I hope at least the sympathy comes through for the children of Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath here. Or at the very least, you can imagine any scandal uh, in the news and uh, just sort of apply this letter to that, that there are certain things we ought not do in response to tragedies. Uh, Ted Hughes writes this, Dear Al, as a friend, please reconsider your writings, talks, etc. about Sylvia's suicide. It was enough before, without the details. Obviously, you can't unwrite them, but I do ask you to set a quick limit on how far you popularize them among mechanical parrot teachers, etc. It is humiliating to me, and to her mother and brother, to have her last days exhumed in this way, as you do in your memoir, for classroom discussion. Whatever motive or intention you put upon your writing of that piece, what you have done is supplied it to classroom discussion. You know there is no other real audience for it. It is interesting purely and simply as further notes to the poetry, and I would say for basically gossip. You would be the first to point out, if the context were different, that such notes are superfluous to any appreciation of the poems. In fact, they are guaranteed to corrupt a real appreciation of the poetry with a sensational involvement of another sort. Those close-up shots of her last days, your theories and interpretations derived from what you saw or what I told you, and I didn't tell you half, are not only superfluous to the poetry, they are an intrusion on the present and future of her family. There are only three of us can tell you whether they are or not on concrete evidence, and so now I am telling you for all three of us that they are, that is, Ted Hughes, uh, his two children, and I, I guess the fourth would be uh, Aurelia Plath, Sylvia Plath's mother, who is still living in America. The mechanical so-called objectivity of higher lit crit is unscrupulous enough, 
in the cynically low opinion it has of the real power of words, and in the way it cannot be bothered to distinguish between remarks made on paper and their consequences in real life. And most of that one can't do anything about. It is all part of the brutalized righteousness of journalism. But your view is wider, and I'm expecting you to be open to some appeal. And and that's something to bring up also as well that, that I've tried to bring into episodes here, is that at some point, um, all of my talk about theory and uh, what poetry means to me and uh, how I don't like what other people think poetry should mean for them, um, at some point, uh, poetry is beside the point. Poetry is not the point. And I think that's one of the things he's getting at here. Um, at some point, it is a bit vulgar to just be uh, drooling over the, uh, the remains and the suicide of Sylvia Plath just to, if your only goal is to either hate Ted Hughes or tear apart uh, and interpret the poetry of Plath. Uh, Hughes goes on to say, Whatever Sylvia may be for your readers and for you, for her mother and me and her children, she is something different. She is an atmosphere we breathe. This is something apart from remembrance. It is a world imposed on us by the public consciousness of her and of our inevitable relationship to her. Your memoir has simply increased that atmospheric pressure intolerably. You have supplied details and interpretations in a form that is now being taken as the official text. I thought you were sensitive to this sort of atmospheric persecution, because it is a sort of persecution. It was enough and too much before. Nobody could have written that scenario of her suicide but you or me, and I cannot see how you persuaded yourself that it was necessary. I would like to know what purpose you think it's going to serve. You kept saying that you would show me what you were writing about her. Why didn't you? For you it was something you wrote, no doubt against greater, great inner resistance. But for your readers it's five interesting minutes. But for us it is permanent dynamite for us, his family. You tell yourself maybe it is all literary history. She belongs to the public. She gave herself to the public, etc. You know that is rubbish. She didn't give her family, and she didn't hand over the inner life of her children to the officiation of critics. A heart attack laid her mother out two months ago. But I'm even more concerned what role your article is going to play in the lives of Frida and Nicholas, the children that Hughes and Plath had together. What do you think its effect will be? Either when they come to read it, nobody but a lunatic would give it to them, or when some precocious school friend gives them the savory details as you recount them. The first shock will be one thing, a shock they might have been spared if you'd put your article in a bank vault. The long-term effect of that slow-motion close-up movie will be another. I would have credited you with more imagination. Can't you see that they won't be able to get it out of their minds? They won't be able to escape it? 
because you've programmed their acquaintances, the general public vividness and popularity of the story is not going to let them forget it. The poems and the novel, uh, the bell jars, the novel, and the bald fact of the suicide left things more general, crossroads of many interpretations, open in all directions, ordinary amnesia could have dealt with that, just the natural anesthetic of being allowed to forget or shape it into acceptable form. But this, this detailed, exclusively painful, artistically vitalized record of yours, is going to break down that sort of defense. Surely you can see all this. The whole subject you deal with is what Sylvia made of her father's death, yet you somehow don't remember how history tries to repeat itself, even without human help. It didn't occur to you that her children are left with an even more dangerous situation than hers, and with all of her vulnerabilities. For you, she is a topic for intellectual discussion, a poetic-slash-existential phenomenon. Basically, it doesn't matter a damn to you what she did, and you'd find any new details fascinating. But for Frida and Nicholas, she is the absolute centerpin. They have made her very important, the more so because of her obvious absence through the mess I've been making of replacing her these last years. The image of her, and of what she did and was, is going to decide their lives. You know these things work out seriously, yet you've defined their, their mother's pose and set it up as the official final public version, the schools will make sure of that, in an absolutely disastrous way. Now by this time, Hughes, uh, even, when, uh, even when he was in uh, university, in, in college, he despised the study of literature in college. So suddenly seeing, not suddenly, but uh, over the years between uh, 63, 62, 63, and 1971, and seeing uh, the suicide of his wife being turned into um, uh, material for literary study, um, you can understand where he's coming from here. The other thing, too, that I have to admit, as I, since I am reading this, I, I am adding to it, um, that he says to Alvarez, you, you would find any new details fascinating. And it strikes me, do, do I have any right to even be reading this? Um, the, the, the other famous example is of Kafka, who told his friend Max Brod to burn all of his manuscripts, burn all of the novels, uh, burn the diaries, burn the journals, burn the letters. Uh, don't publish anything. Now, Kafka's biographer um, believes that uh, Kafka himself knew that what he was telling his friend would not happen. He knew that he was giving an order that would not be obeyed. But even if we grant that, um, it's hard to believe that Franz Kafka could ever imagine that anything outside of what of the fiction that he wrote would ever be published. Um, do I have a right? Does anyone have a right to read his diaries, to read his love letters, to read the letters of anyone who was so, uh, so uh, uh, paralyzingly private? Um, 
And we can think of this for, for any famous person. I'm, as I say, uh, I've been looking for the human voices and the human pages here. So where I go are the biographies, the autobiographies, the letters, the diaries. Uh, do I have a right to do that? Is there something vulgar about even doing that? Um, is it all just fascinating? I hope that I'm not making this stuff just fascinating. I hope that the time I spend with these, with these things, knowing that I'm not getting the whole story, and knowing that I can't pretend that I completely understand anybody, let alone someone I've never met and I only know their words, um, even given all of that, uh, I don't know. Um, but uh, to go on with Hughes here, as I say, in spite of everything, before your details, it, meaning Plath suicide, before your details, it was vague, it was a mystery. But now you have defined the whole thing and handed it to the public. In a real way, you have robbed them, uh, their children, of her death, of any natural way of dealing with her death. This will add up through every year they live. For you and everybody else, it is fading fast. You've solved the mystery of, underlined here, exactly what happened and how. You've given a version anyway. But for Frida and Nicholas, it has not yet properly begun. The presiding fact of their future will only really dawn on them when somehow they meet your memoir. Then what sort of dramas will your details start up in their inner life? You've defined their guardian angel for them in a pose that is going to make things as explosive as possible for them, as if their lives weren't already going to be enough of a minefield. She isn't their guardian angel anymore. You've made a public statue of it, a, a school and university cultural moment. In a real sense, you've given, their inner, you've given their inner life away for them. Whatever audience you imagined and wrote so painstakingly for, all that business about the existential workout of mental events, you completely forgot your only real audience, the audience whose lives your words really are going to change. You were searching out details to enthrall your academic audience and didn't realize you were sticking electrodes into her children's brains. How could you ever say anything about pain? And again, um, no excuses to all the dumb shit that Ted Hughes ever did in his life all the bad decisions he ever made, all the cruel things he ever did. But uh, the, the Ted Hughes killed Sylvia Plath faction of the world um, should, should hear this letter. Um, he is either uh, the psychopath, narcissist, sociopath that they make him out to be, to be able to write a letter like this, or he is an imperfect person who was living with another imperfect person and had an affair with a third imperfect person who was married to a fourth imperfect person and bad things happened. Um, anyway, that needs to be said. Uh, they had enough of the facts and the truths living in the mausoleum that Sylvia left for them. 
What your memoir supplies is not just facts, so few of the facts, so many fictions and mere speculations trying to be facts, but poison. Poison is no less poison for being a fact. There are some poisons they oughtn't to be made to eat, and these are poisons that you alone have brought into existence in this memoir. You know all of this, I'm sure, yet somehow you've rationalized it all away. I can only think Sylvia's death has become a theme for some involvement of your own, some private tie-up that's fouled your judgment. If so, for Christ's sake, step back and see what you're doing. Sylvia is still very much alive in these two children. You can't reinvent her according to your theories, just for the curiosity of the mob, nor for your own private satisfaction either, not if you're setting up any standards of sense. These are the standards of sense that Ted Hughes imagines exists in 1971. Imagine how quickly all of this would have come out in 2021, um, and how, how little there are uh, left anymore any standards of sense, the curiosity of the mob, etc. However you regard it, Sylvia's writings were considerable treachery against her mother, and together with her suicide there were maybe something worse against her children. But critics use the incidental poetry to convert all this into a general license for ransacking the lives of her family, and for no purpose whatsoever. It enlightens nobody. It does nothing finally but entertain in a sophisticated fashion. It is higher entertainment, or it is a matter for students to stuff into answers and theses, again for no purpose whatever, except to get the grades and the jobs. It doesn't even have the justification of an artistic compulsion. The whole occupation is completely frivolous. There was a place here for some sane critic to point out the rights and wrongs and the humanity of it, and lay open some of the violations going on under the guise of fashionable commentary. But I'm absolutely amazed to see you joining the, that mob. Imagine what Lawrence would have said about it. And I think they're talking about D.H. Lawrence there. Uh, what makes it so much worse is that it was so totally unnecessary, and that it was written by you, the very person most likely to know that there are quite a few things more important than literature, more important even than great poetry, let alone memoirs. Anyway, I'm relying on you now to push those details and snapshots and the rest no further. And it's signed, yours, Ted. But it goes on for another half a page, because why not? Another thing he writes beneath his signature. Not even temporary insanity would explain your completely false remarks, implying that there was some sort of artistic jealousy between Sylvia and me. All that banal theorizing about the muses, etc., that is simply the crudest, light-minded speculation, as you should know. If you do know, what made you print it in that ex-cathedra ex fashion as facts about our life? which you, as an intimate, confidential, uniquely in-on-the-scene friend, can be relied on to get right. Is your audience that much in need of theories? And again, I would say gossip, 
Can you imagine this happening on Twitter these days, uh, the, the cruelty of it, uh, of uh, someone committing suicide and jumping on um, whatever bandwagon there is and turning the whole thing uh, just into an, an excuse for politics or a footnote. And he goes on to say, what makes you think? Oh, here we are. Uh, you must have alternative theories that would do us more justice and perhaps even be closer to the truth and would maybe even reflect better on you. What makes you think you can use our lives like the text of a novel, something on the syllabus, for facile interpretations to keep your audience of school teachers up on the latest culture? You saw little enough of us. Both of us regarded you as a friend, not a daily mirror, TV keyhole, rattle journalist snoop, guaranteed to distort every observation and plaster us with his know-all pseudo-psychological theories, as if we were relics dug up from 10,000 BC. And of our marriage you know nothing, but you can't even give us the benefit of your ignorance. You have to rack us with your mechanical, blasé theories. Uh, there we are. That's a good bit for Twitter, too. Uh, not a Daily Mirror, TV keyhole, rat hole, journalist, snoop, guaranteed to distort every observation and plaster us with his know-all pseudo-psychological theories. Um, of our marriage you know nothing, but you can't even give us the benefit of your ignorance. You have to rack us with your mechanical, blasé theories. It is infuriating for me to see my private experience and feelings reinvented for me in that crude, bland, unanswerable way, and interpreted and published as official history, as if I were a picture on a wall or some prisoner in Siberia, and to see her used in the same way. You are false to the facts, and you shame yourself in the way you insult the privacy and confidences of two people who regarded you as a friend. Please stop toting us around like a flea circus, and do what you can to change what you have written. And just in case you aren't sure, none of this letter is to be journalized in any form. I was going to send you this letter yesterday. Today, Sunday, I see you haven't resisted the cheapest stage of all. I think he wrote something else, Alvarez did. Nothing can excuse the swinish mindlessness with which you are exploiting this. You seem determined to push our misfortune in this business to the limit. If you cannot stop your next installment, I shall do everything to stop it. I am first of all asking you yourself to withdraw it. And uh, just to read the footnote to this letter, that is the end of it. Uh, the footnote to the letter says, Ahead of the publication of Al Alvarez's book, The Savage God, His Study of Suicide, which included an intimate account of Sylvia Plath's story, extracts were serialized in The Observer. Replying on November 15th to Ted Hughes' protest, Alvarez wrote that his account had been, quote, written with great care and as a tribute to Sylvia, end quote, that he believed it better for the children, quote, to see this, which is at least written with some kind of consideration and feeling for their mother, than a cloud of vague and malicious rumors, end quote, and that he was powerless to prevent serialization in The Observer 
as his publishers held the serial rights. Finally, he reminded Ted Hughes that he had always judged him and Plath to be the most gifted poets of this generation. But as Hughes said, uh, there are quite a few things that are more important than literature. I would just take the last uh, few sentences of this as a mantra of what not to do, to turn this into the positive thing of what to do, how to treat other people, how to treat other artists, uh, in my naive way of imagining that um, anyone who had either the possibility of fame and attention, or in Alvarez's case, publication, in their left hand and on their right hand, being decent and not doing it, um, most people would just go ahead and do it. But please stop toting us around like a flea circus, uh, and do what you can to change what you have written. Um, of our marriage, you know nothing. Um, what a what a what a call from history fifty years ago, of of how of how ugly all the tabloid and all the all the gossip and all the crap we've been dealing with, all everything that has affected elections and how we deal with one another. Um, what, a, uh, uh, what a prophecy of that this letter is, or at least it seems to me. Uh, maybe I'm just in a grouchy mood tonight and it seems uh, uh, more powerful than it really is. But, uh, but as a statement of how it is that someone deals with uh, the death of their spouse, even as they were probably dealing dishonorably with that spouse, um, and uh, how all of these things affect the family and how in our day-to-day -day lives so much of this is unpredictable and suddenly the roof just caves in on us. Um, it is just uh, an immense document to read and provides, I suppose, the corrective to uh, every statement I've made about wanting to have more renown or uh, fame or money or whatever it is. Perhaps it is best that hardly anyone out there is listening to this at all. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.